All right. Well, I believe the old saying, if you build it, they'll come. So uh, let's uh, we'll go ahead and, and uh, get started here. Welcome to the Pepperdine Harbor Lectures. This is uh, a favorite place of mine. I uh, uh, went to school here, started in the 80s getting a master's at Abilene and uh, uh, sort of drifted away from it and finally got back and finished it here at Pepperdine. And then I haven't fit, quit going to school since then. So I think about 1998 until now for about the last 25 years. Because once you get that bug of being a lifelong learner and realizing how much more you need to learn, you just uh, uh, keep going. And uh, thankfully, with the flexible schedule of the ministry, I've been able to, uh, to, uh, to do that. So this class is entitled uh, Transfigurational Leadership. That's my own made-up word. Uh, uh, you know, when you, you can make things up. According to Mark Love, if you're a doctor, he's a doctor doctor, and uh, he's one of my mentors, and so I'm, hopefully uh, by August I'll get to be a doctor doctor too. So you get to make up words, and, and uh, uh, this, is not a, this is a word people are, are familiar with because the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's not used in leadership studies for Jesus. And I don't necessarily embrace all of the descriptions uh, that are used of Jesus' leadership out there in scholarship, and I'll tell you why as we go through this class. Uh, and I'm sort of proposing something new, and so I'm interested in your feedback afterwards also because uh, uh, this is just a work in progress. This is not my dissertation, and so uh, uh, you'll help me to uh, develop this idea further. But uh, most leadership studies courses, most leadership scholars will say that leadership has something to do with being able to influence people. Okay, the, the traditional uh, leadership definition is a person with the ability to influence others. And so uh, that's why the, the title influencer changed the world. And we have a lot of young people that really want to be influencers today and some of the great influencers that have affected my life Martin Luther King not all of you were alive back then I was and uh, he had an impact on my life and uh, he some of his quotes the time is always right to do the right thing justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere darkness cannot drive out darkness only light can do that Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. <coughs> we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. And I love his nonviolent activism. And I, I really uh, uh, appreciate. And, and you decide here in a little bit, as I give you some definitions of different categories of types of leaders, you, I'd, I'd be interested in what you think what type of leader Martin Luther King was. And then there was JFK, right? And as, a, as a, a young child, about five years old when he died, this is one of my earlier memories of life. And as a, a licensed therapist, that means something. Whatever your first memories of life are, uh, tell you whether the world's safe or not. And this was something that influenced me. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what your, you can do for your country. 
these, they planted seeds in me to change the world. And I see many of you maybe in my baby boomer age group and you've had that seed. And the Churches of Christ have had that seed and the restoration movement has had it. The rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. That's very good, applicable for today. And we must find time to stop and thank the people who make a difference in our lives. And that's why I mentioned Dr. Love. And I also have a great friend here, Dr. Er, er, David Blanco. Not a doctor yet, but he knows as much as most doctors. And then RBG, right? Great influencer. Real change, enduring change happens one step at a time. I believe that, especially uh, in ministry. You've got to believe that as well as in therapy and almost everything in life. Fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. So often in life, things that, are, that you regard as an impediment turn out to be great. Good fortune, and don't be distracted by emotions like anger, envy, resentment. These just zap your energy. That's a personal one, because oh, that's a man's emotion, anger, right? So you decide as we talk about leadership types, which types these are. Here's my hypothesis, okay? And since I'm still in school, you always have to throw this out, right? Jesus' leadership is transfigurational leadership. And you're going to see what I mean by that. But basically, it's, it's spiritual. It's supernatural. You can't become it. You've got to have God change you into it. God prepared Jesus at the transfiguration. We'll see that. Transfigurational leadership that is beyond any leadership model currently proposed by scholarship. Jesus' leadership is much more than servant leadership. It's what a lot of people will refer to will uh, challenge that uh, in this class, trait leadership, transactional leadership, transformational leadership, and transcendent leadership. And there's many, 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 many other types of leaderships that will I can envelop into these major categories, okay? Like missional leadership, like relational leadership, inclusive leadership, and, and, and other things. But Jesus' leadership is spiritually radiant leadership chosen by God to become a sacrifice for imitation. And I think there's few people that have uh, actually accomplished transfigurational leadership. My uh, DMIN project was on transforming leadership of Paul in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now I'm starting to think Paul approached transfigurational. You can help me decide whether he did. So here's these, uh, uh, the four major categories I'm going to use today of leadership. And there's different models. You can divide it out however you want, but this can encompass most of the leadership theories. Trait leadership or hero leadership, transactional leadership, transformational leadership. Those are the ones we uh, study a lot in uh, leadership studies. And then I'm going to add today this one on transfigurational leadership. Let's look at our our text. And this is the one I've chosen. You could choose the one from Mark or the one from Matthew. But I like this one from Luke. In beginning of verse 28 about the transfiguration. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him and went up on top of the mountain to pray. As he was praying, that's key, the appearance of his face changed 
and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The other gospel writers say his clothes became whiter than they can be bleached. All right, so very, very uh, radiant. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his what? Departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. That's his radiance. That's his transfiguration. And the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you or monuments, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. So the narrator is telling us he's out of his mind. He's just babbling. He's just caught up in the moment, saying things off the top of his head, and we do that, and we usually say something. It's sort of foot-mouth disease, and we've all done it, or at least I know I have many times. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid, and they entered, as they entered the cloud, then a voice came from the cloud. We know this is uh, God. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So, other words, Peter, be quiet, and uh, stop talking, just listen to Jesus. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone. So it's one of these supernatural events they didn't know how to process. So they kept to themselves. And sometimes it's okay to, I don't know yet. And God's going to lead me into understanding and answers. And you leave that space for God. I don't know if that's what they, they, they were thinking or they were just so moved by it and confused by it and uh you know a lot of times they thought they were probably supposed to understand this so they didn't ask jesus about it but then later on i think they did understand so what let's parse this a little bit what does the transfiguration in, in these different passages tell us his face changed his clothes became bright they saw his glory he was transfigured before them his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything that the world could bleach. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and he was transfigured. So it gives us uh, metaphors, it gives us word pictures of what this transfiguration was, but it was so supernatural, there's not actually language for it for us. And so we've got to figure this out a little bit. It's such a spiritual event, Matthew 17, Mark 9, then we read the Luke version. So, here's what I think the purpose was. And, and this is not overthinking it, okay? This is just, let's just try to let it use Occam's razor and do the obvious. This, the purpose of the transfiguration was to clothe Jesus in the glory of the divine. You know, Jesus was taking on all evil all wickedness, all sin for all time, not backwards and forwards. I mean, this, this was the cosmic event. I'm a cross theologian because I think the defining event of all human history, of all spiritual history, of all salvific history is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this was in preparation of Jesus. So it clothed him with the divine, the glory of the divine. I think Moses and Elijah are there as buds to comfort him, to encourage him. You can do this, Jesus. 
We'll see you on the other side. I don't know what they said, but they're there for a reason, and we can only speculate. And then, what is the statement that's in all three accounts? This is my son. Only stated a few times, his baptism and at the transfiguration. This is huge. This is my beloved son, my one and only, the beloved. The beloved. And I think if God, if any father tells their son, I love you, son. I love you. That is so significant. It's so important. It has an impact on that son's life forever. Some of us longed for that. Eventually, I was able to get it about three years before my dad died. Really made me feel that way. I had other father figures. But if you had a father that made you feel loved, that loved you, it changed your life for the better. And, and we have to be those fathers for some of the people that didn't. And we've got to direct them towards God so they get that sense of the beloved from him. But this is my son. So I believe that the, the, the purpose of the transfiguration was to prepare Jesus for the cross, for this sacrifice, for this big event. And so that's what transfiguration did. We'll, we'll come back to that. Let's go back through a little bit of history of leadership here. Traitor hero leadership. That's what the Romans practiced, the Greeks practiced. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates said you were gifted with it. You had to, you had to just have that gift and that talent. And you, you really couldn't become it. And they've influenced Western civilization, Western thinking for so long that we sort of look at our leaders and see if they have the gifts or talents. We don't, we, it's changing a little bit that people can become leaders and anybody can become a leader and you, you can multiply your talents and you can develop these skills and abilities. But because of uh, the ancient Greek history and the Roman history, uh, it's still deep within most people that uh, you're either gifted and you're a leader or you're not. And that's changing. But uh, one of the great hero leaders of the Bible, David, we can think of others. What are some of the others you think of as a hero leader in the Bible? They became leaders because they were heroes. Joshua. Joshua. That's a good one. What, who else? The, um, <clears throat> the one with the 300 men and the breaking the lamps, I can't think. Gideon. 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 All right. Joshua, you're breaking the pitchers. <coughs> or that's, that's yeah. yeah. I like the, 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 the march around Jericho. Uh, Joshua. All right. Even Saul was a hero leader, right? And you could think, think of some others. And then uh, we're going to dig into trade leadership, transactional leadership. I think Peter initially was. I think he was trans. There's a journey of leadership. This is a journey. I think we start out sort of in this trait. We move to transactional. I know I have, and then move to transformative. Now I want to even go beyond that. Is is sort of my point. Peter initially, we'll see a verse on that. Paul transforming, and then Jesus. So, trait leadership. Here's. The, some of the technical definition. Trait leadership is also known as hero leadership. Leadership is based on gifts, talents, charisma, character, or traits of the leader. And uh, there's a, been a lot of them. Alexander the Great, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, Winston Churchill, Napoleon Bonaparte, 
Others would say uh, Bill Clinton, his, his talents and gifts. Trait leaders inspire people by the force of their personality, by their, some of their deeds, some of their gifts, and they also know how to use power, all right? Know how to use power. And so, uh, uh, and the, here's some of those great leaders. I had to cut out a bunch of slides about Plato and Aristotle because of time, and also because it wouldn't email because of these pictures. So that's a good way to trim down what you're going to say. Can you email it to yourself? So, but these were, these were great <coughs> leaders. They had qualities. And some might argue they were transformative or transactional. I, 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 I think they're better known personally because of their traits. And then I think David, the story of David and Goliath. He became known. People wanted him to become the king because of these, this mighty story of killing Goliath. All right? And he had some traits, but he also had some significant weaknesses, right? And so you don't want to always, you don't want to lift him up too high, even though the scriptures say some very nice things about him. He was human. And when we get to transfigurational, there is a supernatural aspect about it that's more than human. All right? So now let's talk about transactional leadership. And so many of the leadership theories, even some that I espouse and practice personally, are transactional at their root. Servant leadership is transactional leadership at its root. Inclusive leadership by Holland is, is transactional leadership at its root. All right? So most of the leadership theories that people practice and encourage and espouse are transactional. Transactional leadership or transactional management is the part of one style of leadership that focuses on supervision, organization, and performance. Because in leadership, so much of it had to do with management and organization and structure. And so much of the structure of the history of leadership was hierarchical, then this was a very natural leadership style to practice. And... You know, as I've challenged hierarchy, my professors have really pushed back because there's so much of it, so much of it still needed in certain, uh, uh, and it's useful in certain uh, uh, fields, and yet it can be abused so so desperately. My dissertation is on how followers can lead, can hold toxic leaders accountable, and you've got to have hierarchy and strict structure for toxicity to occur within an organization. So I'm a little down on hierarchy and I'm a little down on bureaucracy because it's so inefficient and it wastes so much. But I'm not, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and you, you, you gotta have all the different tools. But I, I do want to emphasize most leadership theory uh, is either trait or transactional, okay? And some of the great uh, transactional leaders, Bill Gates, he, he acknowledges it himself. Uh, uh, Howard Schultz, one of the brothers, uh, uh, very close to Howard Schultz. He was his uh, per, uh, a personal bodyguard for a while. Then he started doing all this uh, protection of loss management, that kind of thing. And then Vince Lombardi. So what are the characteristics of transactional leadership? Uh, just in some, it would be short-term goals, all right? Policy, stick to the policy. 
you take advantage of the structure and the rules. It's focused on efficiency. You know, the whole church growth movement was very transactional. If, uh, rewards and reprimands, you know, you have those policies so you can reward people or you can fire or reprimand them. Inflexibility, a little bit resistant to change. That's why it's difficult in a global economy when you need very nimble leadership and quick change and, and uh, quick responses. And then it's reactive too often. It's hierarchy and uh, micromanagement can occur. It's very practical though. And sometimes you got, it, it lacks uh, personal connection. Hospital healthcare is very uh, transactional and hierarchical. If you've ever worked in a hospital, I've worked for eight years in a couple of hospitals, teaching hospitals as a chaplain. And they're very hierarchical, very transactional. And doctors even taught stay, don't connect too much to even the, 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 those you're training or, and definitely to your parent patients. And so, uh, but you know, it sure worked for Bill Gates, one of the richest men, men in the world. Uh, it worked for Howard Schultz, worked for Vince Lombardi, you know, and it, it, if it's not abused, if, and we're, we'll talk a little bit about toxic it, at the end if we have time, it, it's an okay form of leadership. Christians practice it and can practice it well. If uh, you just understand its strengths and weaknesses. Also, uh, transactional leaders measure results and provide connecti uh, corrective action when metrics fall short. Uh, again, efficiency, they set goals, performance, and most of my ministry experience in the International Church of Christ was very transactional like this. And we're trying to shift and change our paradigm and our thinking about leadership and that's why I've been focused on leadership for the, about the last 20 years, because I think that was our problem, okay? That we, that no leadership's not good, bad leadership is maybe worse, and we want good leadership. Some of the scholars, Max Weber is a, a famous uh, a theorist as far as management and uh, power and leadership. Uh, James McGregor Burns, I brought a whole a sack of books and have his in the car. I didn't want to carry them up the hill, so I just left them in the car. And, and most of you probably know these books anyway. And Bernard Bass further developed, and others have fuller, further developed transactional leadership. So uh, take take what I'm saying in generality, and it's it's not good to broad brush because these things are still evolving, especially when they uh, peel off into other leadership theories. But uh, Weber started it out with three categories, legal, rational, and use of authority. And unfortunately, things like that, these seeds that things start with stay in the workings. And so that use of authority, that's why authority has gotten abused, abused a lot in leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So let's look at transactional theory by Peter, you know this uh, uh, passage. This is Ananias and Fire. And I really struggled. What's an example of Peter's leadership? And I, I, there's some great passages in 1 Peter about dying to self and, and even when you're wrong to just surrender and imitate Jesus and take up the cross. And that's later in his, 
his maturity. Early in his leadership, he was very transactional. And he set both Ananias and Sapphira up. I think he knew the answer. He asked them, and they lied, and they died. All right? And that's a bummer. I'm, I'm glad we don't get treated that way. I'm glad there's grace. And that's the danger of transactional leadership. It can be very destructive and hurtful. And, but great fear came over the church, and so they definitely didn't lie. Especially the leaders definitely didn't lie to Peter. And so it sort of started the movement off in this real sense of righteousness and holiness. But I think this is one example of Peter's leadership in the beginning. And uh, we won't dwell on it. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but again, and now let's shift to transformational. There's a lot of debate about who's a transformational leader. People will say Barack Obama. Uh, Others will say Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. Most people will agree that uh, Steve Jobs was, Jeff Bezos is, Nelson Mandela is, and uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Okay? And why? Because their characteristics, they use motivation to help encourage development of positive morale of followers, high moral standards, environment with values, priorities, ethics, and morals. Uh, company culture, uh, it, uh, seek the common good, authenticity, collaboration, co cooperation, open communication, coaching, mentoring, personal responsibility, autonomy. These scholars, Doughton, start, start, started the thoughts, Burns uh, developed it further, and Bernard Bass really further developed it. So this is sort of the, the standard for leadership studies in scholarship transformational leadership that's what and it there's been research though that it it doesn't always work because you'll get followers that are toxic and they'll take advantage of this empowerment they'll take advantage of this 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 positive structure and 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 so it doesn't work in every situation and that's why they'll they'll say this transactional is useful it keeps a real lid on especially problem people. But in the right situation, especially in industries where there's need for creativity and innovation and imagination and development, which is almost everything now in a global economy and a global society, especially in church. We don't know how to do church, right? You know, we're not, the church is, is on the outskirts of society now, especially in Western civilization. And so we're learning trying to learn how to do church all over again. Missional Church is on the cutting edge of that. You know, Mark and Pat Kiefert and, and others, Emerging Church, tried some things. So we're, we're, we're trying to learn how to be, be uh, great leaders in a very uh, dynamic, changing environment, okay? And so that's where I think transfigurational leadership is going to come in, but still many people are focused on this transformation because these people did great things. I mean, I'm inspired by Mandela. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a question about it? No, I just, I was trying to summarize your second bullet and I wasn't And 
Uh, my email is gmoretzky at gmail.com. Uh, I know you can't spell my name. It's in the, <laughs> the schedule, though. And I'll send it to you. I, I don't... I haven't published this, don't have proprietary rights on it yet, and I don't care. I'll give it away. I'll publish something that I won't give away, or I'll give away later. But uh, these are just fresh ideas. So, uh, Paul, I think, is a transformational leader. We know this passage, especially those of us in the ministry. 1 Corinthians 9, becoming all things to all men so that we might, by all means, save some. To the Jews, I've become a Jew, you know, uh, to those... Not under the law, become one not under the law. To win as many as possible. The key word for me in that passage is, is win. But he let himself be changed and be different and, and respond to people. And that's what transformational leadership, the reason I, you probably hear I'm a little down on transactional because of motives, okay? The ultimate motive for servant leadership, the ultimate motive for transactional leadership is that word influence. You want to influence somebody. And my definition, this is why it's not going to be in the PowerPoint and it's not in the notes. So don't steal this from me yet. All right. This is, this is my original. Is leadership for the 21st century is the intersection of leaders and followers. That leaders don't do leadership alone. All right, that boast who wrote a book, Leadership for the 21st Century Before the Millennium Came, uh, Roast, I said boast, Roast, it, uh, said that, uh, that there are no leaders without followers. And most leadership studies uh, are discussing leadership more in the terms of this relationship between leaders and followers, that leaders don't do leadership. That le leaders are half the equation, but it takes both. It's that leadership occurs at that intersection, that connection, that relationship of leaders and followers. And I think that's where the best leadership occurs. I don't think that's the only place leadership does, but I think it's it, the, best, uh, the best leadership occurs there. And I ran it by Pat Kiefer, and he liked it, so <laughs> not long ago. And so uh, that's... That's why trans, uh, transactional leadership has a motive to help people succeed, to empower people, to help people develop greater skill and ability to be fulfilled. But that's still a leader trying to influence and do something to somebody. And where I think true leadership is mutuality. It's give and take. It's a relationship. It's it's it's. It's uh, working together, and it's, it's not hierarchical, all right? It's mutual. And we're not very, we, we're not very good in our thinking, unfortunately, uh, in many sectors of not seeing leaders and followers as hierarchical, one over the other, all right? And I, 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 I've been both. I am both right now. In fact, I have, <coughs> I, I lead two churches uh, half time in, in in two places and in one place I have 14 bosses and the other one too numerous to count all right because there's a level above that group just too numerous to count and so everybody needs to be a good follower and Barbara Kellerman out of Harvard 
has uh, written many books and has sort of been on the cutting edge for about 20 years of pushing followership and even wanting followership to be taught in our business schools, not just leadership and in our education or psychology, wherever it's, it's, it's taught. But I love this passage because I do think Paul is starting to approach transfigurational leadership, but he's still wanting to win people, that motive there. And I think true transfigurational leadership and true mutual leadership has no hook. That when you're leading to get a result, you're leading to get a goal, then it, it, it changes the dynamic in the relationship and I think in somewhat an unhealthy way, or it can be. Jesus' leadership is transfigurational, and here's my thesis, based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What was he being prepared for? The cross. So what does death, burial, and resurrection teach us about God, about uh, uh, leadership? I think it tells us that true transfigurational leaders have to be righteous leaders like God. God is righteous. That's why we have Good Friday and the cross. God is faithful. That's why we have burial. All right. He's faithful to his promises, his covenant. He promised Jesus he would resurrect him from the dead in three days. And so Jesus went and died. He entrusted himself. He said it on the cross, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. But those three days are three days of silence. That's a theology for suffering. That's a theology for the dark night of the soul. That's a theology for uh, God's silence and especially hospital and chaplain work. That's where I get that. But, but you have to trust that God is faithful. And then the third thing is resurrection. Resurrection is all about new creation, new start, forgiveness, mercy, grace. And our movement, the ICOC, we're very strong on the righteousness and the holiness of God. We're pretty strong in faithfulness and the covenant and the scriptures really been weak in our history on God's grace and God's mercy. And, and Mark taught me in a class in Abilene, and great teachers like Mark and his dad, Stuart, their throwaway comments are the ones you dive after in your heart and mind and don't want them to hit the floor. And Mark just said one day in class, all ministry is redemptive. And now just even saying it, it chokes me up because I didn't really think that way or know that before he said it. I've been in ministry 20, almost 25 years at that point. That's sad. But that is, was so profound and it's changed my life so much. Good leadership changes you incredibly. But good theology, and this is practical theology this is simplistic this is ministerial but just because it's not i shouldn't say simplistic just because it's simple or it's synthesized from big theology does not mean it's wrong to me this is my guiding theology right here god is trilectic and that's another word i made up you know dialectic but i make up the made up the word trilectic three things being true at the same time so god is always righteous faithful and merciful, he's always holy, faithful to his covenant, and gracious. And I do ministry that way. That any correction has to be all three. Everything, every sermon needs to be all three. 
everything I do, every appointment has to have all three elements. I have to be true at the same time. And it's a challenge, but that's the calling. And when you're in balance, then you have imbalanced churches and you can do damage to people. And as a professional therapist, that's the last thing I want to do anymore is add to people's afflictions or difficulties. Life's hard. I don't think people are fragile. I think we all have great strength, but I've seen so many damaged people. And I always keep a, at least a client, even though I'm very busy in ministry. I have a couple right now. And oh, they break my heart. They got a tough, they got a tough, tough situation. Both their their their, their childhood scripts affected them. And and uh, so ministry has got to, as healthcare, do no harm. And do good. You always hear do no harm, but you don't hear the other ethics, especially of autonomy and truthfulness, veracity but especially the do good. So I think this kind of ministry does good. I think we need to seek to be transfigurational leaders. And I'm doing pretty good on time. Doing pretty good on time. Uh, let's let's uh, have a few quotes. I took out bunches of quotes just for, for time. But here's a good one. Incarnational leading, which I think could be called transfigurational leading, is where the leader and leading... Be- the leader, leader follower become one, where we lead primarily out of who we are as opposed to what we know and what we can do and what position we hold. Mm-hmm. It's not positional. And the only way you can do this effectively over the long term, being authentic and real, is to let God transform you. And I can look back at my life, 42 years of ministry, almost 43 years, I see how God has transfigured me. We worry about discipleship. Hey, if you're a leader, God's going to be discipling you. He's going to use elders. He'll use shepherds. He'll use your family. He'll use circumstances. He'll, he'll disciple you if you let him. If you let that change you and make you more spiritual, everything is going to help you. And if you, if you resist learning the lesson, guess what? It comes back around. The things I didn't learn in my 30s, came back around in my 40s. Didn't learn in my 40s, came back around in my 50s. And right now, I think I've learned a lot, but in this new role, uh, I love the, the, I'm gonna put a plug in here for another university. I love Pepperdine, I have two degrees here. My daughter went here, got a lot of degrees, so I'm very big on Pepperdine. But, Johnson University is where I'm at now. And I, and I promote, I encourage 50 uh, ministers to go to Rochester. So I believe in Rochester, Mark's in here, I better say that. And one of his students, Caesar's in the back. But uh, I love Johnson's philosophy about the PhD program. It says, we want you to become a PhD, not get a PhD. Mm. All right? And God does that. During my transforming leadership study of 1 Corinthians, I went through some things. I dropped out for a little while. I changed churches, got out of the ministry. I I was transformed by writing and studying and researching transforming leadership. Now, studying transfigurational leadership and inclusive leadership and not the opposite of toxic leadership, I'm being transfigured. I'm being put on a cross, leading two churches at my age, 65, I, you know, 
is is death work. <laughs> it's daily denial of self and sacrifice. I've been working harder here the last few years before I might retire than I ever have before. But I, I'm loving it because I'm learning what I'm studying. That this is real transfigurational leadership. I, I have to let God and leave space for God because I'm leading a, a situation, trying to heal a situation that got very, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of sh shatteredness and trying to restore a group of about 700 people in this church that really were damaged. And I don't have the, all the answers. So <laughs> I don't have hardly any answers, even with all this education and all this experience. And so it's transfigurational leadership I'm learning as I'm going. That's why I'm saying this is a workshop. <laughs> I don't have, uh, I haven't arrived on this stuff, but I'm learning it. Now, let's tie it to the theology of the cross, and then we're going to have to wrap up. The knowledge of God explodes from the events of the cross, and it tells me God is just, faithful, and merciful. The Father is righteously holy, and therefore a sacrificial death has to occur. The Son is a co covenantially faithful in his obedience to die with trust in the goodness of the Father. Additionally, the Spirit is mercifully empowering to bring the dead to life and to seal the promise of new creation. So this trying essence of God is summed up by justice, faithfulness, and mercy, and all three elements of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are embodied in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's, you know, we seek to be like the Son, but we really got to become like the Spirit, have all the, vir the, the virtues or fruits of the Spirit, as well as be like the Father for people. So, uh, again, Jesus' leadership transformational leadership is based on death, burial, and resurrection. There's not a lot on cross theology. Luther uh, uh, promoted it. Bradbury wrote about it. Greb wrote about it. I want to just close get down. I told you about servant leadership. You know, all these things are great as elements of, but Green uh, Greenleaf, who developed it, was a uh, uh, Bell Telephone salesman. All right, it's very business oriented at its roots, and it's been adapted by Christian authors. But it was really is a management, was a business approach by Greenleaf, and in 1977, and it's to influence and affect followers. I think Jesus' motives were purer than that. And ours can be too, and we can call it leadership. We, we, call, we use it because of Mark 10. Uh, don't be like, you got to drink the cup. And then Jesus says, if you're going to lead, you got to be the servant of all and not lord it over people and exercise authority over people, meaning abuse people. All right? And, but, uh, and I think Jesus and, and transfigurational leadership includes servant leadership, but I think it's, it's bad for us as Christians to embrace that management leadership style. We have to totally rewrite it if we're going to say that's Jesus' style, servant leadership. And at, and at Johnson, I put it in a post, and I got deducted for it, calling Jesus' leadership uh, servant leadership. And I thought, wow, that's harsh. I think he practiced this. It, but not as it's described in leadership studies. So 
it was we were both right, but professors are the only ones right when you're a student. <laughs> Let me just make that clear. Let me make that clear. All right. Uh, I want to just say one more thing because this is my research right now. Toxic leadership. Toxic leadership occurs in the toxic triangle of authoritative or authoritarian leaders, a conducive environment which is usually hierarchical and very structured and lacking communication and accountability, and thirdly, susceptible followers. Followers that won't dissent or speak up or challenge the leader that will be silenced. And, and the allure of a toxic leader studying has blown me away. And I've been, I've been part of it. And almost every one of our politicians make promises they know they can't fulfill. And that's the allure. I'm not saying they're all toxic, but that's the allure of the toxic leader. They, they can tell a narrative and tell a story and make promises and make life sound like it's going to be great under their leadership, just like Absalom did, you know, and others that were usurpers. And then they become toxic, all right? And anybody, I believe, can become a toxic leader because absolute power absolutely corrupts. That's why every system needs checks and balances and needs this mutuality, all right? But even elderships can become toxic, all right? That's why a lot of ministers leave the ministry because they feel like they're under Saul's, not under, under pure-hearted people, under Jesus, okay? So I, I just wanted to throw that out about uh, uh, the, the toxic triangle. And so the toxic, it can be defeated by the tertiary uh, triangle. I'm making that up too. Okay. I got to do the research before I get to put this in to a slide though. But I think what I might find out is the tertiary uh, triangle includes a egalitarian structure. Well, first an accountable structure that there's accountability, checks and balance, and then, uh, and more of an egalitarian organizational style. Then courageous leaders, there's a lot written about courageous leaders that will speak up wisely, unite other followers. And now with social media, corporations are deathly afraid of social media. And so now those blocked lines of communication where you couldn't get to the supervisor or the toxic leader, you know, now you can through social media. And so, uh, so open communication, accountability, uh, courageous leaders, and then uh, finally, an, uh, uh, just an, an accountable uh, organization, uh, courageous leaders, and then uh, to combat the, the, the structure, just more open communication and flatter. And if you, and all, Effective organizations in the world right now are flattening out because that's the only way you can be nimble and you can make be as responsive to the market and responsive to the global changing situation. That these bureaucracies, you know, we we you can just go back in history of all these or successful organizations that die, and every 20 years there's a turnover. All right, I got to wrap up.
The next class is coming in. Sorry I didn't let you ask any questions. You can meet me in the hall and I'll answer.